Hello, and welcome to the Sailing and Cruising the East Coast of the United States podcast. I'm Bela Musitz. And I'm Mike Wasserman. Hey, this is our podcast about sailing and cruising the East Coast of the United States. In some episodes, we focus on passages and destinations. And in other episodes, we talk about boats, equipment, techniques. And every once in a while, when we come across an interesting person, we'll try to get them as a guest on the show. Now, what makes this podcast a little bit unusual is that only one of us sails. Yeah, uh, the sailor is uh, Bela, that's me, and I've been sailing for over 30 years, not across oceans, but on lakes and coastal cruising on the east coast of the United States. And me, Mike, I don't really know much about sailing at all. I've sailed a few times. I sunk an unsinkable dinghy once, right? So people generally try to keep me off of their boats, um, but I've enjoyed the little experiences that I've had, but like, I don't know why some boys are red and some are green, and I confuse port and starboard all the time. So I'm going to ask most of the questions and Bela's going to answer. Yeah, I'll try to do my best. Hey, Mike, before we dive into this uh, episode, we need to say a special thank you to our newest Patreon supporter, David. Thank you, David. If you'd like to support the podcast, it's super easy. Just go to patreon.com forward slash sailing the east. The podcast is now also available on YouTube as well as your favorite podcasting app. So for you YouTube fans, just search on Sailing the East and you'll find it. And thanks again to all of our listeners and a special thanks to our supporters. Mike, today we found one of those interesting people. Uh, we have an interview with uh, Mark Teason. Mark is a listener and he reached out to me a while back and he had some questions about how I dock my boat. And after several email exchanges, I asked Mark if he would be willing to be a guest on the show. He has two sailboats. So he's really crazy and an interesting story to boot. Yeah, and Bela, I'm excited about this because I love learning about the stories of people that we would otherwise have never met if not for this podcast. I mean, you and I clearly don't yeah. do this for the money or anything like that. We do it because we like to to talk with each other and learn from each other and think about these things. But bringing in these guests and meeting these people has been the really kind of rewarding part of this whole podcasting thing. Now, um, this is going to be, you know, we talk about the east coast of the united states we're really talking about on the kind of the southern part of our range here bela you've sailed a little bit there i have some family in florida so i know the landscape uh from the land side okay but this is going to be fun and and in fact these adventures in florida are so exciting it we had to turn this into a two-part episode so this is going to be the first part and then we'll kind of cut the story in half and we'll have the exciting conclusion in our next uh, our next episode. So I think, Bale, let's just jump right into your interview with Mark Teeson. Yep, sounds great, Mike. Let's go. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you. Yeah, so I'm trying to remember, uh, if I remember correctly, you're a listener and you sent me an email asking me some questions about uh, one of the podcasts where I talked about how I dock my boat or something like that. And that's that what started this this conversation between the two of us. Absolutely. Yeah, and then uh, during that, I, I I think you told me you have two boats, two sailboats. Correct. So I think that makes you extra crazy. <laughs> My wife would agree with you. <laughs> yeah, and and so so then then I said to myself, I got to talk to this person if he's got two uh -oh. sailboats. <laughs> So uh, tell me a little bit about uh, what you do and, and where your boats are and stuff. So um, I'll tell you a little bit about how I got started in sure. this. I uh, learned to sail as a kid at um, YMCA Camp Wissagoma on Lake 
Packerel um, near Aberdeen, South Dakota, when I was 14, 15 years old on a sunfish. And I liked the sunfish so much that my parents actually bought me one. This would have been right around 1976. And I still have that boat. Wow. So it's 47 years old. Yeah. Now, it lives in Minnesota right now, which is where my son lives, and he claims that it's his boat, but <laughs> I still pay for all the upkeep and repairing it, so I'm not sure. So I spent most of my summers sailing as a kid on Lake Hawaii, which is a man-made lake behind a, a large earth-rolling dam in uh, Pier, South Dakota. And then I um, uh, went to college, um, uh, um, went to grad school, got married, had kids, sailed only very occasionally during that time. Yeah. We, had a we had a motorboat and um, uh, the kids like to ski and tube and that kind of thing. And when I wasn't doing that, my main um, leisure activity was golf, played a lot of golf. Then the kids went off to college. There was nobody to pull behind the boat. I don't like to fish. So we sold the uh, ski boat and I bought a Precision 23, which is a boat very similar to a Catalina 22, which I mm -hmm. think you're familiar with. Yeah, yeah, I used to have one, yeah. And um, sailed on a lake in Minnesota and got hooked up with a group called the um, Pelican y Lake Yacht Club, which is a very prestigious name for a collection of docks and a double wide trailer. <laughs> that, that was our clubhouse. But it was really a great experience. I met a lot of nice people. Um, I learned a lot about boats and sailing. And I got introduced into the DIY of sailing. Because mm -hmm. I would have things that needed to be done on the boat. And I would ask the guys, well, who do I call to do this? And they would say, no, 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 we'll, we'll show you how to do that. That's an yeah. easy thing to do. So it's, yeah. No, I don't want to do it. Well, that was not an acceptable answer. They would walk me through it. And, that, and we fixed most things on, on the boat myself. Um, I did just a little bit of um, uh, racing, just some non, uh, you know, lake kind of uh, racing, which I didn't really want to do, but was just a really great experience. I learned a lot about sailing just from those couple of seasons of um, uh, racing. So during this time, we lived in uh, Fargo, North Dakota. Um, uh, I don't know what you know about the Northern Plains, but in North Dakota, it snows in September and, the, and we don't see the ground again until June. Yeah. So it is a very long um, winter. We'd lived there for 20 odd years and um, Sharon loved it. Um, we raised both our kids there. They um, got great educations, went to great colleges, but I got wanderlust and really wanted to move someplace um, warmer. We looked for a couple of boats or we looked for a couple of jobs in um, Florida. That didn't really pan out. But we stumbled onto a marina one day and um, started looking at um, bigger boats. And um, Sharon suggested, my wife suggested, that we buy a big boat, which just floored me. I had yeah. no idea. What I didn't understand was that her rationale here was that if I got a boat that I could go visit in Florida during the winter, that I would um, uh, tolerate living in North Dakota. That only worked for a year. Um, uh, and then um, I got fed up with North Dakota and we moved to Michigan, started sailing on um, Lake Michigan, 
mm-hmm. um, uh, and had moved my precision um, while I'm there. But as you know, the Great Lakes, very big lakes, very l- much more like ocean sailing than yeah. it is like lake tennis sailing. And the precision was just not a big enough on my boat. So bought a, um, a Hunter um, a thir- 33 to sail in Michigan, continued to have my Catalina 445 in um, um, Florida. So at this point, you're thinking, Sharon's a saint, right? <laughs> <laughs> Not only do we not live in North Dakota where she wanted to live, we live in Michigan. And not only do I own one sailboat, I own three sailboats. Yeah. So we did eventually um, sell the um, uh, 23 foot. And for the last several seasons, I've been sailing the Hunter um, uh, during the summer on Lake Michigan um, because we don't come down to Florida during the summer. It's just too hot. I'm down here. And then we come down when we can during the um, winter to um, sail the Catalina. Very nice. Very nice. And I assume when you go down to Florida for the Catalina, you live on it. Most of the time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, what I haven't told you is that I am currently fully employed for the next 22 days, in which time I retire. And we're moving to Florida. And right now, that's where I'm at. I'm sitting in our condo in Florida, where uh-huh. we intend to move to in the fall. Yeah, nice. So, nice. But so, generally, generally, when we came down to visit the boat, we lived on the boat. Yes. Yeah, yeah, very nice. Well, it's certainly a, a beautiful boat, and it's big enough for two people uh, very comfortably. Yeah. So let me ask you a question. I don't know a lot about Florida and, and boating there. So you said you're there in the in the winter. And in the summertime, you're back up north. So do you haul your boat in the summertime? I I did the first couple of seasons, and then it became more cost-effective just to leave it at the um, the dock. um, uh, Yeah, and slips became more and more um, hard to get. And so, you know, if you were going to haul it out, you you pretty much had to give up your slip so you didn't have to pay that rent to pay for the rent for the haul, for the haul out. Mm, yeah. Um, so um, now we just leave the boat in the water all year round. And when we leave for, you know, in the spring, we set it up for hurricane season. And then I have a guy who comes and checks on it and sure. um, does um, uh, additional stuff. Like we leave the bimini up. If a storm's coming, he comes by, takes the bimini down, um, um, those those kind of yeah. things. Yeah. How often do you have to have the – and where in Florida is it? It's in Bradenton, which is in the Tampa Bay area. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I, the, I've chartered out of Tampa Bay. It's quite nice yeah. down there. So we're on the south side of Tampa Bay right before you get into the Gulf. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think I think we actually spent a night in a marina down down that area someplace. I I couldn't I couldn't tell you exactly where. So yeah. do you uh, how often do you have to paint the bottom down there in, in um, every 4 or 5 years. Oh, okay. So that's pretty good. You get 4 or 5 yeah. years out of it. And do you do you have the bottom cleaned or do you haul it out and yep. clean it? Nope, I, um, I have a diver that comes every month and uh, um, um, uh, scrubs and cleans oh, is that the right? So once yeah. a month that's done. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He he prefers to do it twice a month during the summer months when the growth is more. But I don't use the boat during the summer, so I hold him down right. to just once a month. 
Right. Yeah. You know, it, it always amazes me how, how much, and you probably noticed this uh, on the Great Lakes and your lake sailing and ocean sailing, the, the amount of marine life in the ocean is just incredible. Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, everything grows in salt water. <laughs> yeah. Yep, it's just, it's, and compared to freshwater, right? I mean, I, I grew up, my sailing background is similar to yours, and I learned on a sunfish on a lake. And, you know, if I, I was either swimming or I was sailing on the sunfish or I was fishing, and, and you know, I'd swim around there in the water, and you'd barely see a fish every now and then. And this was, a, right. the fishing was good in this lake. And you, you go to the, I go to the marina, there's fish all over the place, just around the docks. It's just incredible. And all the stuff that grows on a piece of plastic in the water, it's, it amazes me. And you you can hear it at night when, uh, you know, when we're sleeping on the boat, you can hear the various things. Um, uh, there's a thing called a pistol shrimp um, um, uh, down here, which yeah. makes kind of a very loud popping noise at um, um, uh, night. And Sharon and I have actually gotten to the point where it's hard for us to sleep on the boat unless the pistol shrimp are out because we're so <laughs> used to that background noise. It's like your sound machine. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, it's, it's funny you bring that up because when we chartered down in Tampa, uh, we, we did spend the night in the marina down, down sort of around where you are. And I remember, you know, we were done with dinner and we're, we're sort of, you know, relaxing, getting ready to go to bed and getting to bed. And we hear all this pop, pop, pop. This right. it's, sort, it's a hard noise to describe, but it, it's, I agree. it's like, and, and it, to me, something's going on with the boat, right? I, I, <laughs> something's leaking or, right. or something's dripping or something's going on. And I'm, I'm like looking around, I couldn't figure it out. And so we're out, you know, looking around the boat on the outside because now it's dark and, and, you know, we're looking around and there happened to be a, a liveaboard like three slips down from us and they were out in their cockpit. And, and I went, went down there and said, you guys get this noise too? And they were chuckling and they go, oh yeah, yeah. It's the, it's the <laughs> shrimp. And <laughs> yeah. So that was, that was, that was interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, in your most recent email to me, you you said you've uh, had some challenges down there in Florida with your boat. So t- take us through that. So um, uh, this is a um, <clears throat> hopefully somebody will learn something about this. Yeah. I know I know that I learned a lot of things um, I'm a, I'm a from our we call it the incident. <clears throat> so. It, you know, one thing I'll say up front, and you, I, I've read this multiple times, and you have mentioned this on your podcast multiple times, that the most dangerous thing on a sailboat is a schedule, that you should never sail to a schedule. And I, I firmly believe that. However, <clears throat> it is difficult when you have this kind of lifestyle where you don't live there you work on a schedule, you have um, a week or two off, you get them um, down there and you want to sail. <laughs> right. So um, we have tried to modify um, us. We, we used to come down with our trips as um, preset destinations. Now we come down with our trips saying, we're just going to be flexible. We're going to go where the wind takes us on these um, various um, um, trips. So we showed up towards the end of January um, uh, at one of these um, times. Um, Sharon wasn't with me. My buddy Alan was with me, and he's my sailing partner who lives in Minnesota. 
we we met at the Pelican Lake Yacht Club. And uh, Alan is not only a great sailor, but he's also a mechanical engineer. And so he can fix anything on the boat. And uh, many times he's actually walked me through things on the phone. Yeah. He trying to fix fix the boat. So he's a great partner to uh, to have. Um, we got down there. So it's um, Wednesday, January 25th. And um, uh, we're leaving um, Bradington, where the boat is. And our plan is to sail up to uh, Gulfport, which is um, a four or five hour sail kind of north of, of where we are. Um, and it's brisk um, outside. And the... The nice thing about where we are is that um, we can either go, once we get out into Tampa Bay, if the weather's good, we can go south and go into the, um, the Gulf and be there in about an hour. And if the weather's um, rougher, we can go north and just sail in Tampa Bay, which is a little bit more protected um, there. So this particular time was kind of in between. We decided to uh, stay in the um, uh, Tampa Bay, in the south part of Tampa Bay. And it was a um, uh, you know t- fifteen to twenty knot um, uh, winds. Um, uh, we only put the jib out. We never even put the mainsail up. Yeah. And um, uh, we were making five to six knots. Um, uh, for anybody who knows the the area, we actually went up the north the North Egmont Channel, which is a big shipping channel <laughs> that the um, uh, you know the big freighters um, yes. uh, use. And um, uh, we we got that that fine, and um, uh, we got to the to um, uh, Gulfport without um, uh, too much um, uh, trouble. Um, uh, and at Gulfport, there is it's a great town. It's a, uh, has this huge public anchorage. There's always fifty to hundred boats um, um, uh, there, but there's always room for more. We always find a good place to uh, anchor. There's actually even a mooring field there for a very reasonable amount of money. And um, they have great restaurants. So our typical pattern is to um, anchor, take the dinghy into the dinghy dock, um, uh, which is a, a nice public dinghy dock, walk to one of the restaurants. Um, uh, you, you know the story. Yeah. Um, uh, Gulfport's a great little town. It has one of the most honest city mottos I've ever seen in my life. Their city motto is Gulfport is a drinking town with a fishing problem. <laughs> very nice. <laughs> now, t- typically that anchorage is very well protected, but this particular night, the the, the way the winds were mm. coming, it was a little bit rough in the anchorage. And so we decided not to take the dinghy out and we just ate on the boat that night. Now, the other great advantage to having Alan on the boat is not only is he a good sailor and can fix anything, he's a very good chef. So um, he cooked us a very nice dinner, had a nice night. Next next day, it was um, um, a Thursday. We checked the uh, um, uh, weather, and it was actually a little rougher. But we were going to go south to um, a longboat, Longboat Key. And um, we would be going with the wind the most of the time. So we figured, okay, it's, it's going to be a little rough, but we, we can handle this. Um, from where the anchorage is to get out to where you can sail, it's about an hour. Um, you, you go through a, a neighborhood and under a bridge and um, uh, that kind of thing. And the last 
half a mile to a mile is kind of a narrow marked um, passage with pretty big um, uh, breakers um, uh, on, on either side. Mm-hmm. And um, the waves were kind of intense in there. There were six to eight foot waves that we were heading directly into. Um, you know, I had the motor just a little bit above my usual cruising RPMs, and we were only making about four knots. And yeah. when, we hit, when we hit one of these waves, we were down to about um, two knots. But we eventually get out among there, and uh, this time we put the mainsail up. We put about three quarters of the mainsail um, up and left the jib down. And um, the first hour of the trip was a beam um, a reach, and that was a little bit rough, but it, you know it was still fine. We were we weren't nervous about anything. And then we actually got to Egmont Key, and once we got to Egmont Key, we could turn south, and then we were downwind. And um, then the sail, as it always does, gets much easier. Sure. We're still we're still in four to six foot swells, mm. but we're we're going with them. Uh, um, sure. uh, it's not bothering us um, uh, yeah, much, yeah. and we're easily making six to seven knots of uh, um, uh, boat speed. Um, uh, so it's it's typically about a, a three to four hour sail, and we made it to Longboat Key at uh, in two hours. Uh, um, uh, you know, we made a very good um, um, time. So um, uh, Longboat Key is a place that we've been multiple times before. We know how to get in. There's a bridge that we have to um, uh, have open um, uh, uh, and um, get through. Um, uh, we put the um, um, sail um, uh, down, turn on the motor. And at this point, you know, we're kind of tired. We, it's been a difficult sailing or a challenging sailing day, but we're feeling pretty good um, uh, um, about ourselves. Um, uh, still in these four to six foot um, uh, um, uh, waves. And here's where I make my first mistake. <clears throat> There's a marked channel that starts in the Gulf and um, um, it goes in Longboat um, um, Pass. And it is the most conservative route like most channels um, um, are. Now, again, we've been down this path multiple times, um, uh, and I had several charted routes on my plot charter and on my tablet where I knew that the water was deep enough for yeah. us to, to go through. Yeah, I can see by your smile that you already know what's going to happen um, um, uh, here. So um, uh, we, I'm, I'm directly on one of these um, um, charted routes. And we hit the bottom of one of these troughs and on the bottom out the boat and we hit something. It felt like a rock. I don't know mm. what we hit, but we hit something hard. And immediately the rudder locked in the starboard position. I oh. could not turn the rudder um, uh, um, uh, at all. And so we bounced on this um, uh, um, reef or bottom or shoal, whatever it was, for a couple of times. And, you know, the waves are all behind us and they pushed us into the main um, um, channel. So now we have a very limited time in this channel before we reach the other side of the channel and get into trouble. And I'll be honest with you, I froze. I panicked. I did not know what um, um, what what to do, um, and so uh, here's my first lesson I'd like to impart: <clears throat> is yes, you may know how to get in and out of a channel during calm position, calm weather by taking a shortcut, 
don't take the shortcut in bad yeah. weather. Uh, I think we probably would have been fine if we just would have gone the extra 20 minutes and gone to the head yeah. of the channel and gone all the way down the um, passage. Um, at this point, Alan is doing much better than I am. And uh, he goes down and gets the emergency tiller to see if we can get yeah. steerage um, on my back. So we hook up the um, emergency um, um, tiller. And here's lesson number um, two. Know where your emergency equipment is. <laughs> yes. Which we did. We knew exactly where the emergency tiller was. But have played with it once or twice before you actually have to put it on the um, yeah. boat. Yeah. So it took us a few extra minutes to go through the steps of you had to take this panel off, um, I'm put this in, put this pin in. And um, we finally, you know, probably took us six minutes instead of three minutes. Um, um, uh, but it, again, it was kind of mentally stressful. But the rudder is still locked. The emergency tiller doesn't help us um, um, uh, at all. Um and at this point, um, uh, the, you know, the other thing is, is that the emergency tiller is stored right by our life jackets. And so when Alan brought the emergency tiller up, he also brought two life jackets up. And yeah. so now we both had life jackets on. Um, uh, and now we're um, still in this very narrow channel being pushed to the other side and have no um, um, yeah. steerage um, uh, there. So um, at this point, I'm going to um, I'm stop and ask you a quiz. <laughs> if, uh -oh. if Bela was in this situation, what would he do? <clears throat> I would drop the anchor. That's exactly what we should have done. And I wish you had been there. Because <laughs> <laughs> both of us forgot about it. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting in that we've, we were in a similar situation where um, several years ago where um, uh, we had trouble getting the mainsail up while we were in a channel. And, um, uh, we, and at that time, we remembered to put the anchor down, got ourselves stopped, were able to play with the um, yeah. uh, um, uh, sail and, and get it up and, and get on our way. But for whatever reason, we... Just completely forgot about yeah. the um, um, anchor, which I hope would have saved us. Um, yeah, there. you know, I will. I will tell you, um, I'm I'm an engineer, so I'm a little anal sometimes, and I have checklists for all sorts of things. And when I'm, when I, one of the things I check when I'm going into a channel, or I'm in a narrow place and it's, you know, a little rougher than sort of normal. Uh, is I, I go forward because my anchor has a pin in it that holds it to the anchor roller so it doesn't bounce around. I go forward and I take that pin out <laughs> so that if I need to drop the anchor quickly, I can do it. Because I worry I worry not, not so much about hitting something, but that certainly can happen. I worry about my engine stalling. You know, because when it's rough, the fuel gets mixed up and your filters clog and your engine stops. And then you're in a bad situation as well. Right. And because right. uh, I'm not typically sailing into a channel like that. I'm motoring in. So right. I, I always go pull that pin so it, I can drop the anchor really quickly if, if need be. And I don't have a remote anchor. I got to go forward to drop it. You know, I make sure my anchor circuit breaker is turned on. Right. And I pull that pin. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's a very, very good practice. Our, our anchor actually does launch fairly easily, but we do have to go forward to, yeah. uh, um, uh, to, to uh, launch it. Um, uh, but we just completely forgot yeah. about it. In, in retrospect, one of the things that Alan and I have talked about is what we might have been able to try is, is to use the bow thruster to um, um, uh, try to move um, uh, the um, uh, bow in the correct direction and then gun the engine and see if we could have steered out yeah, steer, of the steer with the, bow, steer with the bow thruster. Yeah. I don't That's know. That's a good that, idea. Yeah. I don't know if that would have worked or not. It, it, it certainly works in calm water, whether it would have worked in these waves or not or not. Yeah. All right, Bayless. So you passed the quiz. I'm very proud of you for doing that. Yeah, but I like the bow thruster idea. I'm going to remember that. See, that's one that I've never thought about. So this is good uh, because, yeah, you can, you're right. In, in, in my boat, I know it won't work if the wind's really howling uh, or if there's big waves. But in a, in a situation where it's not too bad, I can certainly steer the boat with the bow thruster. Right, right. That's a good idea. So um, uh, now we come to a lesson three. Um, uh, lesson three takes a little bit of explanation um, um, here. So the lesson is don't ignore routine maintenance items on your boat. Okay. So I'm, you know, I know my boat fairly well. I assume that most boats are set up this way, but the steering mechanism, you know, there's a wheel. Yeah. That wheel is connected to a series of cables. When you turn the wheel, it turns those cables that are connected to a quadrant, and the quadrant is attached to the shaft on the rudder, and that's what turns the, the rudder. Um, on my boat, and I suspect that many boats are like this, there are two cables attached to the um, a quadrant that are then attached to fixed places on the inside of the boat, and their job is to limit how far the rudder turns oh yeah okay. uh, so that you can't turn the rudder too far which is exactly what happened to us right we hit something the rudder got slammed over and it got caught underneath the fiberglass on the boat and was um, stuck there so when i first bought the boat um, uh, both of those cables were too loose we could turn the rudder too far both port and starboard and I had a guy help me and we fixed them and we got the port side one um, uh, correct. So I couldn't turn um, uh, too far to port, but we never quite got the starboard one mm. um, 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 uh, fixed. And so when I was making tight um, um, uh, turns to starboard, I would get this alarm for my autopilot that I had turned the rudder too far and I'd have to press a button on the um, uh, autopilot to make it um, uh, stop beeping at me. And um, it never causes any problems. And I just never got around to doing this because on most things on a sailboat, it's a, it's a huge pain in the ass to fix. <laughs> there, you know, you have to stick your um, body halfway down into the um, aft um, Lazarus um, and um, get both of your hands on the um, cable joint and um, get those screws undone and then try to pull that cable straight, um, right? It's a, a eight-strand wire cable, right. which doesn't bend, bend all that much. So anyway, we had never done that. Um, I never got that fixed. And I'm sure that that was part of the reason that we got into um, um, trouble um, um, with that. Okay, so what, what happened next? 
what happened next was I got single-minded on something that was clearly not going to help us. And I got it into my head that I had to call somebody. We were in trouble. I needed to call somebody. So I'm clicking through my head. Who should I call? Well, the bridge tender is right there. Um, he's just, a, you know, I'm sure he's watching us at, the, at this point. And I think about picking up the radio and calling him, but I'm going, what, what is he going to do? Right. He's, he's never going to be able to help us. So then I thought about calling the Coast Guard again. We, our lives were not in danger. Um, the Coast Guard doesn't care about your stuff. They only care about you. And um, they weren't going to be helpful um, at all. So I settled on calling um, uh, my towboat company, Towboat yes. in the U.S., which I have a full subscription um, 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 to. And um, so I got a hold of um, them. And of course, you have to go through all their little questions about your account and where you are and, and whatnot. And all of this is just making me more um, anxious. And sure. in, in retrospect, there was no way, even if I knew Superman's number, there was no way he was going to be able to get to us in time right. to um, prevent what happened next. And um, I just spent a lot of mental anxiety energy trying to make a call to somebody that, that was not helpful um, 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 at all. So in the next few minutes, um, uh, we bounced over the far edge of the uh, um, uh, channel. And in the next few minutes, we ended up on the beach. Mm. Bela, okay. Part one of the story is great. I'm on the edge of my seat, right? Okay. What are the big takeaways? And maybe you can kind of summarize the key issues for today. And what should we look forward to next time? Yeah. So this, this, is a, this has got a lot of good stuff in it. And, you know, when, when I started talking to Mark, I, I didn't know where we were I didn't know this story uh, in, in advance, so it, it sort of unfolded, and it was it was really wonderful. So a couple of thoughts I had here. One is you can have lots of sailing experience, but every day out on the water, you can be presented with something new, and so your ability, you know, that experience helps you figure out what to do in those new situations. Um, but every day is a new experience, and I think that's one of the key takeaways. And, and no matter how many lessons you might have, how, how many sailing schools you go to, uh, sort of the actual getting out there is, is very different. Uh, the other interesting thing I think is a good takeaway for me <clears throat> is that weather conditions are not just for sailing, but also for getting into the harbor. And sometimes getting into the harbor is a lot more challenging than being out five miles offshore and sailing because you have a lot more sort of space when you're five miles offshore you're not going to hit anything well when you start coming into harbor you know stuff gets narrow there's other obstacles in the way so one of the things that evie i've never thought about is you know oftentimes you'll see the weather forecast for the day and the wind's going to increase as the day progresses and you say oh, okay i'll go out sailing for three or four hours and as the wind starts getting stronger i'll start heading back in well i'll tell you where i keep my boat on narragansett bay the channel into the marina is really tight. Two boats can barely pass each other. So there's not a lot of room for error, if you will. And if the wind's really howling and the waves are big, I don't want to be out there. I don't mind being out sailing in the main part of the bay. That's fine. But coming into harbor is, is a much more challenging thing. So I think you got to think about that weather piece as well. Uh, yeah. 
What were some of the things that struck you, Mike? Well, to me, you know, A, it's just the story of hearing how his brain worked when he was undergoing these challenges, right? And the things that he was trying to do and looking for, I think were fascinating. And then, you know, I guess to me, it's this idea of, um, I don't know, the idea that that when you're you ask people for help or you need help, that um, that people share their knowledge and people want to help you. Maybe sometimes too much, but is this knowledge sharing that kind of Mark talked about? Is this something that you see as typical in the sailing world? Oh, Mike, it's unbelievable. Uh, and and I, I this the sailing community is the first place I've really or the boating community is the first place I really experience this, and and particularly the sailing community. And, and but I have an interesting observation, right? So the boating community is so helpful. And I, this has happened to me at the marina. I, I'll be working on my boat and and I need a tool or something I don't have with me. And I'll go knock on my next door neighbor and they'll have the tool. They'll come over. They'll help me fix the thing I'm doing on my boat, you know, and it, it's or they'll give me something that they have an extra one of. They have they might have an extra oil filter or a fuel filter or something. Just give it to me. It's remarkable. And, and I think it's, it's, it's really, really interesting. I compare that to some Facebook groups I belong to that are focused on sailing. And in a Facebook group, it's about, you know, people will post a question like, Hey, um, um, my engine keeps quitting on me. This is the engine I have. Does anybody have any comments? And 50% of the comments will be helpful. They'll be thoughtful and helpful. The other 50% are wise ass remarks, <laughs> right? And, and then I was thinking about this a little more. Oftentimes you'll hear people on the radio and uh, out on the water, on the Marine radio. And, and someone will be having a conversation. Of course, everybody can listen in. It's sort of like Facebook, right? Everybody can sort of listen in and, and someone will make some comment or ask a question about something. Well, gee, what's the best way to get into this Harbor? And you'll hear wise ass remarks. You'll hear helpful information, but wise ass remarks. And I think the conclusion I've come to is that if it's if it's anonymous, that's when there's a lot of crap going on. That's that's when there's a lot of noise. That's when you get the wise ass remarks. When it's not anonymous, when it's face to face, like I'm in the marina and I'm asking somebody, I want to go to Block Island, you know, which harbor should I go to? They give me good advice. They either say that they don't know or they give me good advice. It's this element of anonymity, I can't say that word, it's, it's this element of being anonymous, where all of a sudden the channel gets very noisy. I don't know. That was my, that's what kind of got me going there. No, I think you're right. And I think the, the history is filled with this, right? That the cloak of anonymity is used, right, as kind of an excuse to to be a wise ass or a jester or, right. you know, right. to, to be, to be mean to people, right. To bully people, right. And all of these things. And, you know, yeah, when it's face to face and when it's human being to human being, um, people, I believe in the goodness of people and not everybody's like this, but this is, we've heard this consistently throughout this podcast, right. 79, I think episodes are on. Right. And, and it is, it's this decency and humanity towards others, whether it's a boater to boater, you've told some really cool stories about going into marinas and how helpful the people yeah. in marinas are in different parts of the industry. Right. We had right one on paint, right. And the, the paint person is really helpful. Um, so all of these kind of neat things where it is kind of 99% helpful rather than 50, 50. And I guess that's the key is to, you know, make contact with people and ask questions and, and people will help you. But I think that's fascinating, right? How much help 
Yes. He was given a people, people care about him. Right. And people want him to, you know, to, to solve his problems and help him solve his problems. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. So I think that's kind of a, a special thing, but you know, I think we're on the edge of our seats here to find out what happened. <laughs> so maybe we should stop now, wrap this episode up and give people a chance to kind of hold their breath and see what happens in episode 80 yeah. when we have the conclusion of Mark's story. Yeah. There's one other quick thing I want to say though, Mike. Sure. So, and this is about, you know, being an engineer and, and, you know, that makes me a little anal about certain things. And early on, uh, I, I, uh, I used to work in an airport. So I used to hang around airplanes and pilots a lot. So I, I can remember, and for a period of time early on, I thought about being a pilot and, and, uh, so there's a, in, in, when you're flying an airplane and in pilot training, there's, there's a lot of scenarios that they think through about what to do when something goes wrong. So if this happened, you know, if all of a sudden this part of the airplane stops working, here's the things to do. And they have checklists for all that stuff. And, you know, last two summers of sailing, I've, I've made it a point to go sailing solo, to go out by myself. So I'm dependent. I need to figure everything out. And, and I think this notion of sort of thinking through what if my engine stops as I'm going into the Harbor. And I've thought about this given the place where our Marina is, and it's such a narrow channel. What am I going to do? I've thought about various different scenarios like that and thinking about them in advance, I think helps prepare you if they should ever happen. And, and, and that's why I do all these checklists about things, right? It's sort of from my, my pilot dreaming days of sort of thinking through that stuff because that's the stuff where it can make a big difference. The other thing I wanted to say is about the Coast Guard. And I hear this on the radio all the time out on Narragansett Bay and in Buzzards Bay. People say, hey, they, they call a Coast Guard and they say, hey, this, you know, I just ran aground and come help me. And the Coast Guard goes, okay, is anybody hurt? Is any lives in danger? You know, is anything like that going on? And they say, no, no, no. And the Coast Guard says, well, you call call a boat towing service. <laughs> so the Coast Guard is there when there's, you know, danger to life and limb, or there's going to be some catastrophe that happens if your boat blocks a channel or something, if it sinks, right? That's when the Coast Guard's going to come into action. So the so, so the, the Coast Guard is is not like, is not like the police department or the fire department where, you know, if you have a cat stuck in your tree, you can call them and they'll help you get the cat out of the tree. That's not how the coast guard is. And I think that's a misconception that a lot of boaters have. A lot of boaters say, Oh, I'll just call the coast guard. Well, they're, they're there for a very specific reason. So you gotta, so I think this notion of self-reliance is really, really important. Yeah. And it all fits together, right? It's kind of going through the potential scenarios before it happens so that when it does happen, you've practiced and you have a plan, you know what to do. And right. I think, you know, it's not just sailing. That's everything in life, right? We both run businesses before, even yep. if you're teaching a class like we've done, right? What happens if this happens? What happens if that happens to, you don't have to paralyze yourself, but doing a little bit of thinking about the likely outcomes, because, right, it's probably 99%, it's going to be one of three outcomes, Right. And That's at least right. if you go through those three in your head before you do that, whether you're driving a car, take a car trip somewhere or, or going rock climbing or, you know, you name it, right. Skiing, right. That it's good to have some kind of advanced practice with the different scenarios that may occur. And it's probably worth every now and then practicing for that 
one in a hundred, one in a thousand, yeah. one in ten thousand. So that if you bad luck does befall you, right, you've got a plan. Yes, absolutely. So I think those are great words because the idea is that you don't have to call the Coast Guard or if you something does happen, you know who to call and you don't waste valuable time trying to call the Coast Guard and maybe right. be taking them away from a, a, you know, a real kind of life and limb emergency, as you said. So I think these are great points, Bella, and it kind of sets up, I think, part two, right, where we see what's actually going to happen yes. to Mark. And yep. it's not a it's not a bad ending. We can give that part away. But um, but, <laughs> right. but listen in uh, episode 80 um, and we'll see you next time. Listeners, thanks for joining us. And we hope you found the conversation interesting and thought provoking. And if you have questions about what we've discussed or people we should get in touch with, let us know. Our email is sailing the east. That's all one word at Gmail dot com. Hey, and if you enjoy the podcast, hit that follow button on your favorite podcasting application. You know, as we record this, it's uh March 23rd up here in upstate New York and the uh, sun is almost shining. The snow's starting to melt and I'm starting to think about uh, sailing. And uh, so until next time, signing off from upstate New York. See you soon. Bela from over here in Münster, Germany, where it's already spring. Sorry. And there's no snow and the flowers are <laughs> up, but we'll see you next time and look forward to the conclusion of uh, the story with Mark Thiessen. <laughs>